Then it's mute. Check the button on top. See if it's muted. Unmuted. Push it once. Now try it. Okay, he grabbed the wrong mic. He grabbed the wrong mic, sorry. Ah. I throw the senior pastor under the bus, I'll tell you. <laughs> yeah. All right, can you hear me now? Okay, we'll get this thing figured out here. Anyway. We've been talking about It's Bigger Than You uh, over the last several weeks, and we have been thinking about uh, the message of Jesus, especially in Luke's gospel. We're going to be looking all the way through Luke's gospel and listening in as Jesus has conversations with all sorts of folks. And uh, that conversation tends to take on this theme of the fact that it's really bigger than you, that the gospel is not just about you, it's about the world around you, it's about the kingdom of heaven. Luke chapter 4, a couple weeks ago, we uh, heard Jesus trying to give that message into his synagogue, and the people in the synagogue promptly kicked him out, which was kind of a way for them to say, yeah, it's bigger than us, and they sent Jesus out uh, of their fellowship. And then the following chapter in Luke chapter 5, Lori last week talked about the disciples out fishing and Jesus asking them to cast their nets into the deep, and they caught an abundance of fish, and Jesus says, now you're going to be starting to catch people because that's what your life's going to be about. It's not about what you're doing here. It's about catching human beings and allowing them to experience the good news of the gospel. Today in Luke 6, we're going to be hearing another such story, and Rachel Mallett is here to read to us from Luke 6 and from Leviticus. Okay, so from Luke 6, on another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and taught. There was a man there whose right hand was withered. The scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would cure on the Sabbath so that they might find an accusation against him. Even though he knew what they were thinking, he said to the man who had the withered hand, come and stand here. He got up and stood there. Then Jesus said to them, I asked you, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save life or to destroy it? After looking around at all of them, he said to them, stretch out your hand. He did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. But they were, when, the, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the alien. I am the Lord your God. This is from Leviticus 23. Thanks, Rachel. Let's pray for a moment. By your grace, O oh Lord, and through your mercy, we pray that you will allow these words to come to somehow point to the word that Rachel just read, the word written, as well as the word made flesh that we know in Jesus, who we're seeking to learn from this one who we know is Messiah, this one who has come to teach us about how to live. 
And we pray this in his name. Amen. Remember the Sabbath day. Let's bring that slide up and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You shall not do any work, you, your son, your daughter, your male or female slave, your livestock, or the alien resident in your towns. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, but rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and consecrated it. I have never found in any of the churches that I've served anybody who has been against the Ten Commandments. If I were ever to have taken a poll in any of the churches, and I suspect even here, and asked about the Ten Commandments, I suspect the Ten Commandments would get a 100% approval rating. Not many folks are against the Ten Commandments, at least as long as they're inside church. We all think that murdering is not such a good thing. We think that uh, stealing is not such a good thing. We think that committing adultery is not such a good thing. So we're kind, of, we're kind of good with the Ten Commandments. But when we get to the Fourth Commandment, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy, it's not that we're not in favor of it, but it's one of those commandments where we're not quite sure what exactly we're supposed to do with it. What is this commandment asking me to do what is this commandment asking me not to do? I grew up in a family that traced its Presbyterian roots to the Presbyterian Church of North America. It was a small, somewhat conservative, pietistic branch of Presbyterianism. And that denomination was very intent on keeping the Sabbath. Some of you have heard me tell the story of being selected at nine years of age to the T-Ball All-Star team. That is not me. but. Um, <laughs> <clears throat> it would be the only all-star team to which I would ever be selected. I peaked very early in my athletic career. <clears throat> the all-star game, however, was scheduled for a Saturday afternoon, and you can imagine how excited I was about playing this game. But it rained on Saturday, and the coach called my father to tell him that the game was scheduled for the next day, Sunday, Sunday afternoon. But we were Sabbath keepers, which meant no sports, no movies, no work on Sunday, of course, which also meant that my father got to have this conversation with his nine-year-old son to tell him that he wasn't going to be playing in the All-Star game because it was on a Sunday. Now, as a nine-year-old, there was very little I understood about that decision. I do, however, think it's one of the reasons why I never made it to the major leagues. But I'm sure I pouted for a while, but what I did come to appreciate years later was this decision and this struggle that my parents took upon themselves to protect what they had understood to be a gift from God. Sabbath is not just a commandment from God, it is a gift from God. It is this wonderful gift from God that was given originally to an agrarian society where the temptation would be to work every day because a farmer's work is never done and to insist that each person stop and rest from sundown to sundown in order to enjoy the creation and those God had created you to love. To keep the Sabbath holy was to insist that you stop and rest and enjoy the sacredness of life. And ever since the people of God have been given this commandment, they have wondered, they have struggled to figure it out, how are they to protect this day for themselves? 
It's not unlike a walled garden. We don't have many walled gardens in this part of the world, but travel to Europe and other places and you will see walled gardens everywhere. And they're walls, so I've learned, not just to keep people out, but also to protect what is inside so as to allow the garden within its walls to grow. So the good Lord, though, gives us this wonderful garden, shall we say, of the Sabbath for us to tend to and to enjoy and to stop and smell the roses. And what has been hard for us, though, to figure out is how to wall the garden in how to protect this garden, how to keep it sacred, allow it to flourish and grow. That's why a part of me has a little bit of sympathy for these scribes and Pharisees in the story that Luke tells us who are very concerned about the wall that goes around the Sabbath. What are we supposed to do, they ask? What are we supposed to not do? Because there is something very sacred that they want to protect. There is this commandment, one of the Ten Commandments, mind you, that they want to remember and they want to honor and they might even want to enjoy. So they want to make sure that this gift they have received from God doesn't break from being mishandled. But in their effort to guard this gift, the rules of the Sabbath grew to be rather oner onerous. The wall had gotten to be so high, so secure, that maybe, Jesus wondered, they were missing the point. It was kind of like a college I spoke at not long ago that had for years a rule that you couldn't walk on the grass. Hard to believe a college wouldn't have a rule that you couldn't walk on the grass, but that was the case. Beautiful campus, gorgeous quadrangle across which stretched this beautiful field of closely manicured, fertilized, deep, dark green grass that people would admire, and I'm sure it was a great selling point for the admissions department and the marketing department. But years ago, a new president came in and wondered with the trustees if they were missing the point of the quadrangle. Because as college students, what do you want to do? You kind of want to step off the sidewalk. You want to play frisbee. You want to picnic. You want to hang out on the grass. Their wall garden was maybe missing the point of their community. The sidewalks were missing the point. So they pulled up all the keep off the grass signs and sure enough, miracle of miracles, their deep, dark green grass stayed deep, dark, and green. And a lot more Frisbees and picnic blankets. So when the man with the withered hand sneaks into the garden of the Pharisees and the scribes, they're very concerned about what rule applies and what rule doesn't apply in regards to what they can and what they can't do with this man who's got this withered hand. And they've gotten themselves all twisted up in knots over the dimensions of the wall, the height of the wall, the thickness of the wall. And they have forgotten about the garden. So concerned over the what of the wall, they have forgotten the who, the who of the human. So they want to see whether Jesus is going to be a good wall keeper. The scribes and the Pharisees, Luke tells us, the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would cure on the Sabbath. Whether he would open the wall door on the Sabbath. Whether he would let the man pick some roses on the Sabbath. And Jesus says, you may be missing the point. The walled garden is not about the wall. 
It's about the garden. We've got this human being here, Jesus says, and like this garden, this human being needs tending to. It's kind of what the Sabbath is about, right? That God's children might flourish. God gives us a day of rest that we might flourish, Jesus says. This man needs some flourishing, and that's the great pivot point because Jesus is the teacher who is here to say to the Pharisees and the scribes and to you and to me that God wants all his children to flourish. God wants all his children to flourish. Can I get an amen for that? Amen. amen. Boy, you Presbyterians can do it. He wants all children to flourish. And don't you wonder if Jesus doesn't have in the back of his mind all those texts in the Old Testament that are pretty unambiguous when it comes to gardening, or shall we say farming, over and over again, the same sentiment is expressed in Leviticus and in Deuteronomy and in Exodus and in Ruth. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap to the very edges of the field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. You shall, let me get that text up there. You shall leave them for the poor and for the alien. I am the Lord your God. I'll say that again. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. No, you shall leave them for the poor and for the alien. You shall leave them for the poor and for the alien. In other words, from the very beginning, when God implanted his image upon us, when God sought to share, shape his people, it was always going to be not about whether some flourish, but about whether all flourish. You got for yourself, God says, this nice big 10-acre farm? Well, then make sure you leave the edges for someone else. Make sure you got a lot of leftovers because it's not about your boundary. It's not about your wall. It's not about who you're keeping out. It's about the human beings in your world who can stand a little flourishing, the poor, the widow, the alien, the same alien as it turns out in the Ten Commandments who deserve just as much rest and gift of Sabbath. You shall not do any work, you, your son, your daughter, your male, your female slave, your livestock, or the alien in your town. The poor, the widow, the foreigner, the one who doesn't look like you, the one who doesn't speak like you, the one who doesn't act like you. So when Jesus is talking about holiness with the scribes and the Pharisees, the holiness of the Sabbath, he is quick to point out that from the very beginning, holiness always encompasses the sacredness of the neighbor. Our withered hand friend, Jesus says, has meandered into the sacredness of our Sabbath garden. But he's sacred too. Our, the prostitutes have wandered into the sacredness of our fellowship, but, but they're sacred too. The tax collectors have wandered into the sacredness of our temple, but they're sacred too. The Mexican, the Syrian have wandered across your border, but they are sacred too. Leave, Jesus says. The Old Testament says, leave enough on the edges for them. Because for Jesus, when it comes to the sacredness we want to protect, it doesn't start with the sacred wall or the sacred window or the sacred ritual or the sacred cow or the sacred day or the sacred meal. It always starts with the sacred neighbor. Next to the blessed sacrament itself, C.S. Lewis once said, next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. And it makes me wonder what this might be saying in this day and age, if there's anything this 
political season has done. It has inflamed our conversations, and we are quick to line ourselves up on one side of the line or the other, kind of like those Pharisees wanting to know whether Jesus is on their side or on another side. Are you with us or against us, Jesus? And Jesus says, I'm kind of with the guy with the withered hand. I'm not sure whether that keeps the law or whether that breaks the law, but this guy needs a little help. It doesn't make much sense if we're going to have ourselves this little garden and he can't enjoy it. Don't you wonder if maybe the unique contribution that you and I as brothers and sisters in Christ, if the unique contribution we can make to the impassioned debate of our times is to find a way to start the conversation in an entirely different place not with the party or the government or the politician or the policy, not to say that we don't get to those, we should because we're citizens and citizens should speak of these things, but rather though, starting with those things that don't bring with them lines and walls and boundaries and security, instead to begin the conversation with the holy reality in our midst, the neighbor, the poor, the sick, the foreigner, not as some category, but as a real in the flesh person who has managed to get themselves right into our garden. The guy who cut your grass, the woman down the street who just lost her husband, the family two blocks over who can't afford to take their kids to the doctor, the Egyptian family living right across from you, the little boy in your daughter's class who worries that her parents will be deported. Jesus is always wanting the conversation to start there, before the lines, before the walls, before the platforms, always in the flesh, the holiest object presented to your senses. You probably have heard the story of the days of World War II and <clears throat> the two GIs whose comrade had been killed and wanted to make sure that he had had a proper burial, so they found a church cemetery off in the French countryside, and they knocked on the door of the rectory and to ask the, the priest for permission to bury their comrade inside the walls of the cemetery. And the priest told the GIs that, you know, the cemetery has some restrictions. You had to be Roman Catholic. You had to be a member of the parish. Whereas your friend, Roman Catholic, was he a member of the parish? No, the man said to both questions, well, I, I wish I could help you, but my hands are tied. Well, you know, the soldier said, this is, <laughs> this is wartime. These are extraordinary times. Uh, no, said the priest, I, you know, I, I really can't do it. You, you can bury him outside the fence nearby, but, but just not inside. So the soldiers, disappointed, found a little spot right outside the fence to bury their comrade. They dug their hole, they buried their friend, they said a prayer and returned to the platoon. The next day they came back to put a marker on the grave and they walked up to the side of the fence they had dug the, where they had dug the grave and, and it wasn't there, no grave. They walked up and down the fence, no grave, all around the cemetery, no grave. Fearing the worst, they went to the priest and said, Father, forgive us, but we were the ones yesterday who had asked about burying our friend inside the fence, but you said outside, we did just that. We buried him outside, but we can't find it. We, we looked up and down the fence and no sign. Do you have any idea what might have happened? And the priest said, oh, I know what happened. I was so upset about your visit yesterday that I spent half the night worrying about what I said to you, and I spent the other half of the night moving the fence. May Jesus, maybe Jesus had the ear of Robert Frost when he wrote, before I built a wall, I'd ask to know what I was walling in or walling out as to whom I was like to give offense. Something there is that doesn't love a wall 
that wants it down? Whose side is Jesus on? Every time we draw a line, Nadia Boltz-Weber recalls a parishioner saying to her once, every time we draw a line between us and others, Jesus always seems to be on the other side. Let's pray. We thank you, O oh God, that you have given us these commandments, these gifts, and you wonder with us about who is our neighbor, and you wonder with us how are we to deal with our neighbor. And we ask, O oh Lord, that you will allow us to somehow find some borders at our field such that there may be people who can come and enjoy the feast of our lives, of our church, of our nation, so that they may understand that you are a God of love, a God of welcome, a God of hospitality, and that your people may be ambassadors of the good news. For we pray it in Jesus' name, amen.